Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday. Focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is episode 43. Before Diana Yanez transformed her own life, she recovered from bulimia and attended Al-Anon for a decade due to family members suffering from alcohol addiction. Diana reports that recovery changed my life. The way I live, think, and relate to myself and others is so much deeper because of the changes that recovery brought me. Today, Diana is the founder of All the Colors and is a certified financial planner, registered life planner, and financial empowerment guide and dreams of transforming money management worldwide for women of color entrepreneurs. Her vision is to create culturally aware systems for women of color entrepreneurs' money to become a stable and supportive foundation for themselves, their loved ones, and their community. Diana is fulfilling her vision due to over a decade of experience with the financial industry, her time as a social worker, and now as a coach. She brings these skills and experience specifically to women of color because she knows that financial jargon needs to be translated into language and priorities that make sense to this underserved community. Diana is a digital nomad living and traveling in Latin America with occasional visits to the U.S. When Diana is not helping clients own their power with money in life, you'll find her looking for waterfalls, reading in parks, and learning more about Latin American history. Take a listen. Well, hi, Diana. Thank you for coming to my podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. What was life like before recovery for you? It's such a big question. I know. <laughs> I uh, life was pretty small. It was pretty small. The the things that I felt comfortable doing, the the, the way that I felt comfortable being. Um, I and it's that's like a strategy to keep yourself safe. Mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. I. Oh, my self talk was horrible. I had the worst self talk and. I recognized that it changed when I heard somebody else's self-talk that reminded me of my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pretty self-destructive. Like there's a reason I came to recovery. Kind of what were some of the challenges getting into recovery and what recovery looks like for you now? I was lucky in that I grew up knowing about, so I came to recovery through the 12 steps. And I remember going to my uncle's one year anniversary when I was around 10 years old. Mm. And it was, uh, he was a narcotics anonymous. So I knew about that. And I came to recovery because of my eating disorder. So I didn't know that there was a 12 step program for eating disorders, Mm -hmm. but I found it when I was desperate. (laughs) I, uh, my weight, I had stopped, I was bulimic, but I had stopped purging, but my, but my weight had, I had gained like 40 pounds in six months and I was having health issues because of it. I was pre-diabetic. I was having constant heartburn and I hated myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I remember thinking, I go into the doctor and the doctor said, you have to lose weight for your diabetes. And the only way I knew how to lose weight was by purging. Right. And I thought that's probably not what the doctor wants me to do. There's, yeah. there's, there's <laughs> probably other healthier options. And so what helped you move through this process? Recovery itself, learning yeah. the 12-step program, it has its own momentum. It was pretty, I was really active in 12 steps for almost for a decade. 
honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I eventually stepped away from it. Um, there were aspects of it that I that that were actually holding me back at some level. Mm-hmm. I moved into a different spiritual community that I now find more supportive mm-hmm. in the work that I do now. And that was a big, big source of grief when it happened. But what helped me at the beginning of recovery, it was really the community. Yeah. I remember uh, maybe my third session, my third meeting, sharing where I was at and a, fr- a woman who became one of my best friends and is still one of my best friends coming up to me and being like, I know exactly where you're at. And she was pretty new in recovery. So we became new recovery friends and mm-hmm. recovery taught me how to, it taught me how to have relationships in a way that was win-win um, because I was really codependent. I was like always putting other people ahead of me and then being really resentful. And that was just it's a cycle, isn't it? Just, yeah. Yeah. It was a very sticky cycle. Um, it, it's changed so many things. It's like a, it's, it's, I'm a different person because of, because of recovery. And yet, um, there, I have that saying recovery is for people who want it, not for people who need it. I, I, I feel really, all of us have this thing in us that wants to be well, mm-hmm. that can tell when we're not well. And I was lucky to have a really destructive way of being that moved me faster into wanting to be well. Um, just the way that I treated myself was so just like my, my, my self-talk. It's like, I could never say anything positive. And yet there was also something in me that was like, there's something off here. I can, this can change. Like I had, I, I guess I always had hope that it could be different. That's hard to have, isn't it? So where do you think that came from, that hope? I don't know. Any, any ideas? That's grace, you know? By God, like that's there's not that's not another twelve step saying. Um, but for the great, but for the God, grace of God, there I go. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I remember what it was. Because whenever, often when I judge other people, there's something in them that reminds me of me, or when I'm seeing someone in the middle of their their addiction or the whatever their pro, their process is, mm-hmm. I just remember that, that for the grace of God, that's not my that's not where I'm at today. Um, there, there is, there is definitely a sense of huge gratitude and that I moved on. Many people don't. Right. And some die. Right. You know, I mean, I I think, do you, do you believe that there was courage of your process or do you feel that it just had to happen or there was no other choice? What, what was that process like Mm -hmm. for you in that way? There was, there was courage. I have to give myself also credit for this, this process, I kept coming back. I stayed, I, I did not want what I saw everyone else around me have. Um, like, like I wanted a fulfilling career. I wanted (laughs) to enjoy, to like my body. I, I want a enjoyable romantic relationship. Like, and those are not things that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So I, it was, there's this leader, there's this person I follow, Adrienne Marie Brown. She's a social justice activist. And she talks about how when we're 
inventing a better life, we're really engaging in science fiction. Interesting. Um, So that's, that's very much like, it was very much science fiction to think like, what if one day I don't hate myself? What if one day I treat myself with kindness? What if one day I, I enjoy exercise for the enjoyment of it rather than the compulsion? So that's a, that is like an evolution for you, right? And you mentioned that wasn't how you were raised or what you saw around you because you actually went also to Al-Anon, is that right? Mm-hmm. So as a, as a family member um, who has another family member struggling with a different form of addiction, what was that like for you? It's, it's still really sticky. And also I'm a Mexican. So culturally, mm-hmm. as a woman, taking care of others is a big part of, yeah. of just like how, how we set ourselves up. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, so there's a subcultural things that had to change there. Um, it's been hard because I'm not able to connect with my family in the ways that I can connect to people outside, like the intimacy that I wanted, the mm-hmm. being, being seen, just like I'm trying to speak in really plain English, like being seen as I am and not mm-hmm. being asked to change or not being asked to take care of others. I don't have that in my family of origin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a lot of, and and it took those 10 years of Al-Anon for me to even be able to see that I didn't have it and that I wanted it. I was so blind to the dysfunction mm-hmm. and not to judge. I just was so blind to the patterns that I was stuck in. Well, it's and hard, right? Them. Right. It's hard to see an alternative if that's all you see. You know, inundated, this is the culture that you came from, and this is kind of the expectation in some ways. So what helped you kind of get that alternative? Like, when you're in it, it's really kind of a challenge to like, well, this doesn't feel right, so I'm going to step out. It's almost like feeling hopeful when it when you're used to feeling hopeless. Like being colorblind, yeah. you know? Yeah. If you're colorblind and you can't see green, how do you develop the skill to see green? Right, but you, but you did, and um, it's possible. I think it's possible for all of us. Uh, what? So I'm not a therapist, but I've learned a lot about therapy language, um, the the range of comfort, the the the, to- the tolerance for discomfort, like the trauma healing mm-hmm. that happened happened that happened a lot in Elanon. At some point, though, the twelve steps has this concept for me that wasn't helpful. Mm-hmm. Of there's a diseased part of you. So there's, there's self-rejection that's going on where I moved on to where I now have my spiritual home is with Quakers and they have Mm. an idea of like every part of you is good and holy, even the parts of you that are Mm -hmm. self-destructive, which is trauma is like tying up a portion of you, hiding it away and healing from trauma has been slowly opening up mm-hmm. to what it was that I was hiding from. And that's been incredibly painful. And that's mostly, that actually happened after recovery. Um, because recovery got me to one place. Point. Right. It got me to one place. Right. And that would have been stable, but then moving on to like more flourishing. Mm-hmm. 
stepping out of my comfort zone more, going after my dreams. I needed, I needed to believe that it was possible. So yeah, can you restate your question? No, I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it. I'm, you know, it's about thriving now. You've survived. There's this foundation, right, with recovery. Is that true? Yes. Yes. So recovery got me to a place of stability. Right. Now you're thriving. And now thriving. Yes. And and recognizing how messy thriving is oh, and not yeah. being so upset. <laughs> right. I love that you said that. That's so true. It's not a straight line. You know, once people are like in recovery, they think everything's going to be great. It, no, it can suck for a minute, you know, and it's messy, like you said, but when you can get through the messy, then what? And so what happened for you? You got through that messy part. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, and I, and now, now recovery for me is, is being able to like slow down and enjoy the messiness, not in like a masochist way of like, yeah, but the realistic, like, right? Yeah. Like I'm an entrepreneur and I have to do sales calls and oh, those are hard. I don't want to do sales calls. Right. I don't want to put myself out there. What if they don't like me? Like right. a thing they say in AA is like, if they're not going to, if I can't win, I don't want to play. Um, so right. 14 right. months into being an entrepreneur and I'm like, okay, I think I have to do sales calls. Have you know? to play a little bit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's uncomfortable. And I have that strength in me now to stay with the discomfort. I have a bigger tolerance for the discomfort um, that I didn't, that's, that's part of thriving. It's weird how like. Oh yeah. Yeah. I like, I really appreciate you saying that because part of grace is accepting that things are not as easy Right. And part of hope is understanding, even though it's hard right now, there might be easier times to come. And so when you're describing your thriving and embracing some of the messiness, that's like just almost in my world, we call that radical acceptance. Like we know that things are going to be hard. And we also know if you can tolerate the discomfort if you can know that you can do hard things and get through it, what do you get? You get to to actually get to the other side and thrive in the way that you want. So you wanted relationships. You wanted, you know, being an entrepreneur. You had to do the hard sales calls. And when you did hard, what happened for you? When I did hard, then new options were available. I shared at the beginning that for me, um, before recovery, everything was small and it was small in a way of being controlled, right? Like I would just do exactly what my mother had done and my grandmother had done and what was expected of me. So it was very, it was very repetitive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now when I do the hard thing, I have no idea what's on the other side. Right. (laughs) We don't. We don't. I wish we did, then it would be easy, but that's not hard. <laughs> this is. Well, and I think it's, I think recovery thriving for me is like living in that paradox yeah. of, of both, like it's, it's like non-attachment. It's like both really wanting the thing. And also like, if I don't have the thing, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not a hundred percent sure how to do that, but I had no capacity for any of that more complex 
way of being mm-hmm, mm-hmm. before recovery, before recovery, anything that was painful because it was so painful. Yeah. Because it was so painful. It would just throw me back into my little box of there must be something wrong with me. I must've done something wrong. Like it, it always like there's something that was the biggest, I guess that was the repetitive thing. There's something wrong with me. And and recovering now is like, if something scares me, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with me or that I have to drop the thing that I want. It just means that maybe I need to up, I need to learn new skills. I need to ask for help. I need to do, there's a million different things that could be done. Whereas before it was always like, I should just not do it. Right. So what helps you work through that fear? Because that's fear, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I can't do this. I'm not worthy. There's this degree of fear. So what helps you get to that well, let me find this other alternative, that kind of mindset. There is that in-between to get through that part. And you mentioned earlier, recovery helps you do that. But what else? Because you've also, you know, folded in Quaker, you folded in other parts of your life. So how does that happen for you? Definitely, I rely, just like the beginning of all stats was Overage Anonymous and then Al-Anon. Community was really, really important. Seeing people who were further ahead on the path and then doing what they were doing, that's still a big part. That skill set of like relying on community, mm. having community reach out to, having community that I'm close with, that's still one of the main things that I do. I've also learned to to listen to my intuition more and to slow down. Like I've had ever since 2016, I've had a mindfulness practice and it, it has. So I, I was maybe about three years ago, maybe five years ago, I was walking home and someone, someone hit my, hit me in the face, trying to steal from me. Right. So someone was trying to, to rob my, my backpack and that threw me into a really, really deep trauma spiral, which yeah. actually like, ugh, like all the gross things became a huge opening for growth and like whatever, right? Like right. Always, something horrible happened right. and then oh. kind of pulled in my life mm-hmm. to work forward and put me in touch with a, a therapist that has been transformational for me. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was in the middle of a mindfulness-based stress reduction class. Wow. And these classes are 40 minutes of meditation every day for eight consecutive weeks. So I was three weeks into the program and I was having these trauma memories that were coming up whenever I meditated. And I talked with my, the, the facilitators Mm -hmm. and they said, if it's too much, slow down. But I was actually able, because of the mind, because of the mindfulness, I was able to see more deeply into myself and actually be able to move through it. So it was the slowing that the mindfulness gave me of just like being with the body sensations and seeing how like that was then, this is now. It developed this really strong skill set in me, the strong muscle to, yeah, to then separate that was then, this is now. Um, and now that I'm not in the middle of like that huge, because it, it was about a year and a half that it took me down, mm, honestly. And mm-hmm. I was seeing my therapist all the time. I was having panic attacks. It was 
I, it brings tears to my eyes. It was yeah. the hardest period of my life. Mm-hmm. And it, and no one else outside of me could see what, what was going on because it was all me and my memories. Mm-hmm. But mindfulness, even through how painful it was, was a tool for me to actually clean what had happened. Mm-hmm. And I had the therapist and I had the Quaker community. And at the time I was not an entrepreneur. I was not putting myself in new situations. It was just kind of like, how do I stay with me through all of it? How do I not disconnect myself from me? Now that incredible muscle of connection is a beautiful way that I know when it's time to, to change paths, to continue paths, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to know that this is just the path that I'm on. Um, Yeah. So that, that mindfulness, and I don't think it has to be that painful for everyone to get in touch with it, but it was for me. And I think for a lot of us in recovery, there's often something horrible (laughs) Unfortunately, true, <laughs> right? Um, I appreciate so much your your generosity of sharing the story, because it sounds like your ability to understand and differentiate the past to now, and knowing that past doesn't have to define you, is an interesting compass that helps you decide kind of when to step forward, when to step back. Is would that be a true or accurate description? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, because it's it's becoming more in touch with my with my body and my body being a sense of like knowing whether I want to do something or not um, mm-hmm. was very difficult at the beginning, especially for someone who suffered through an eating addiction, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> my relationship to my body and whether my body was hungry or full or tired or hurt, I didn't, it, I overrode a lot of that for like at least the decade of my life. I started dieting when I was nine years old. Wow. Um, and I, so becoming able to now see my body as a friend and like if my body's, and it's, it's kind of like if my body's not comfortable somewhere, I now give myself permission to leave. Whereas before I would be like, you have to stay here no matter what, you're being childish. I think of an example of, um, so I'm a, I'm a digital nomad. I travel a lot. And sometimes because I don't have community that's here, mm-hmm. I can get really lonely. I'm very extroverted. And when I first started, I was afraid of going out on my own. Mm-hmm. And I had to remember like, okay, what where what is this fear? So with my right. therapist, it was like, well, go for 15 minutes. And then if you don't feel comfortable, you can leave. Right. Well, exposure. Right. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. And and I did that. Sometimes I would go out and it was 15 minutes. Okay, I'm gonna take a taxi. I'm going home. This is not this is not where I want to be. But they were really small experiments mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. trusting myself. And how is that now for you? What is let me rephrase. What is your relationship with yourself now? How would you describe it's that? Joyful. It's pretty joyful. I, I was, I just shared something. Um, so last week I was at a retreat with these coworkers. I have a part-time job and with my coworkers, um, we were in the dining hall and the woman who was serving us spoke Spanish. And I started speaking in Spanish to her because she's older than I am. So out of a sign of respect, um, I wanted to use the more formal usted instead of tú. Mm-hmm. And then I and then I sense that thing in me of like, oh, my coworkers don't speak Spanish. They're going to be uncomfortable with me speaking Spanish. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, I um, I felt sad 
that I had that recognition. And then I remembered my dad being like, you should try to be more white passing. And then it, all of these wow. things, these uh-huh. very, 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 very quick thoughts mm-hmm. happened. And the overtone of it was like, oh, I'm sorry, baby. It was this very gentle feeling of like, you're a woman of color in a space that you don't know. This this just gentleness of like all of this mind chatter is not as as important, mm-hmm. and it's it's more of just like oh, this is this is actually this is beautiful that you're going through this and that you're I, I chose to speak to her in Spanish because I love Spanish. There's an ease that comes with it. It's my first language, right. and it felt like I was being connected to her in a way that that's important to me because my family's very working class too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that, that like kind overtone, whenever I sense myself getting riled up sure, is with me like 80% of the time. Um, I had the opposite overtone for most of my life. Mm-hmm. And so now with, with this, that's such deep work and being authentic, vulnerable, and open. How has that related to the work you do now? Tell me a little bit about that process. Right. So I am a culturally aware money coach. I'm a certified financial planner and registered life planner. I worked in finance when I was in college, and I thought this wasn't the world for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I eventually did come back because I've always been very interested in money and what we ask money to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's very similar to what I used to ask food to do for me. Uh, And I see so much suffering around money. So I have, I have all the technical expertise, Mm -hmm. but more than anything, I love empowering people to like bring more gentleness into how they manage money. Oh, Interesting. Um, seeing how, seeing what patterns they have there that they need to outgrow. I also, I love that, like, I can, I can help people create a system. Like, here's what your money does. Here's how you manage your cash flow. Here's what you need to do for estate planning, for risk management, for your insurance. Mm -hmm. And then they can implement it and their life is better because of it. So there's, there's very like concrete things that can be done. I thought for a minute of being a social worker, but my as as like big as my heart is, I yeah. I didn't have the setup for that. Like I wanted to have something concrete. Sure, sure. I think that's beautiful. How will how would you describe your recovery and finances now? Whenever I see, well, a lot of the times people spending uh, is what what brings them right in what brings them into work like they're like I, I I mean I don't know where my money goes I'm not sure like right. I have a lot of of people who earn really good incomes and at the end of the, the year they're like what happened I have mm-hmm. no idea what I spent it on I have nothing to, I have nothing saved I feel like I'm drowning in debt and I have a lot of compassion for that feeling of I'm doing I don't know what's going on and I'm doing something that's self-destructive mm-hmm. and it's probably not to the level of where I was sure, in my sure. journey. And sometimes when I see someone's really struggling, I'll share my my own recovery journey on, on the terms of food. But that really like 
strong layer of compassion muscle that I have, I then get to use with them and share with them. And mo like I think money is one of like the leading causes of mental health issues. Yeah. Therapists often don't know how to talk about it. It's so stressful, <laughs> right? I mean, it just like in addiction, there's loaded topics. You know, and people have shame around money or not having enough money and what that means in a status situation, hierarchy within society, all of these things. And and you, t- and you work with mainly women of color, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Tell yes. me a little so, bit about that. So my business is all the colors and my vision is to transform the state of money management for women of color entrepreneurs. I help women create stable and supportive money systems for themselves, their loved ones, and their community. My goal is always to help people automate as much as possible of their money so that then they can go on and live the rest of their life. But before you automate, you need to understand what you're asking money to do. You need to understand like what, what are the things that need to be changed in your money? And it's often as women, we just think we're, we're taught somehow by society, um, it's too complicated for you. Mm. Don't worry about it. You don't need to know this or like you can't understand this. And there's been research then that shows like when you have women and men test their skills, their financial competence and financial literacy, often women rate themselves as less financially literate than they really are. Mm-hmm. And men will rate themselves as more financially literate than they really are, right? And both of these are very gendered. Like we're asking men to do things that they don't know how to do and pretend they know how to do them, which is in itself stressful. Right. And we're asking women to downplay themselves. When they know more than they think. When they know more than they think, yes. So you get to empower these women and help them shift relationship to money. Like when, when you're doing that, what, what do you think the common things are that women of color that you work with struggle with the most? They definitely struggle feeling that they, they can't figure it out, that they do, can't understand it, oh, right? So much. like not, not seeing themselves as capable. Uh-huh. That's one thing. And the other part of it is it's helpful to have someone hold the space with you as you're looking at money trauma generational money Mm. things so again I work with women of color and my experience like my own experience managing my own or understanding my own generational trauma then helps it easier for them for example when when you look at the racial wealth divide in the U.S. Mm -hmm. there's very concrete things that the U.S. has done to really systematize that to really have that in the system uh one of the like for example the biggest the most well-known one is the fha the federal health housing association gave veterans like um preferred mortgages Mm -hmm. if they lived in a good area if they lived in an area that they rated highly this was being done 30s, 40s, after World War II. We had a lot of vets that came back. And a good area was a white area. Mm-hmm. So just by the definition of being a person of color, you weren't able to apply for those FHAs, for those loans. Mm-hmm. And these are very concrete things. And yet they, they stick with us. And like, what are the strategies that people develop? 
in order to survive that, right? Like I mentioned earlier, like my, my, my dad had told me to be more white passing as mm-hmm. a strategy that he had learned to do. To he navigate. wasn't able to because his, yeah, because his English was really strong. His, his accent in English was really heavy, mm-hmm. but I don't have an accent in English. So he's like, you're a leg up. You can, you can pass in more easily. You can pass. Wow. Wow. And every person has has a specific way that this shows up for them. But okay. for women, for people of color, so a person of color has this like color thing that's going on. And then as a woman, we have the woman thing that's going on. So it's, it's often like, what are all of these? And un, un, yeah, what are these um, unconscious patterns that we're using? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do we recognize them and then change them? And so when you're working with these women, and again, it's all, what was the name again of your company? All the Colors. All the Colors, beautiful. Um, so what are some of the, the things that your clients say after working with you? I can share with you. Um, often they'll say, they'll be really grateful for the gentleness of working on this. Money often feels like it's numbers, but it's actually more psychology than anything else. Wow. So the gentleness is something they always um, are are happy with. Uh, the I'm a translator. I very mm-hmm. much see myself as a translator because I have, as a certified financial planner, that's like the highest degree, technical degree that you can have with finances, with personal finances. And I listen really well to people. So if a person tells me that their hobby is hiking and everything about hiking, then I'll use hiking as the metaphor that we're using to make sense of money. Often when people are talking, I can tell that they're not even able to listen anymore. So I will use I will use coloring pencils to show them the different accounts and how they're going to make them work. And I stay with people long enough for them to understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's there's this when we're in a trauma state when we're remember when we're either frozen or f- trying to leave the conversation mm-hmm. our cognitive capacity really drops sure there's this book called scarcity why having too little means so much and they did research on people they they created a fake scarcity scenario. They told them, you have $1,000 in the bank and you just went to the mechanic and they told you it's going to cost $1,500. And these are just the numbers that I remember. But it's like the there's an expense that's more than what you have right? or more than you had budgeted. Mm-hmm. And then they had people take a, a quiz, an IQ test, like a mini IQ test, and they scored like 15, 20% lower wow. just by having that fake... Um, scarcity mindset. So what does that mean? So it means that people's ability to understand and to make decisions logically with their cognitive brain is diminished when they're under stress and financial stress is a really, because your body's in free spike flight. It's right. not sending blood to your brain. It's sending blood to your limbs so that you can run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it means that I help people come out of that freeze fight flight state so that then they can make logical decisions. And one of the main ways that I do this is through community coaching, because honestly, community is what transformed my life through OA, 12 sets, Quakers. Right. Seeing other people that are on the path along with you is so much more motivating than trying to do it just on your own with your own willpower. 
I love I love that because community, right? And finding the right community. Like you redefined throughout your life so far different communities that helped you along the way because not just one fits all, right? So I think it's yeah. really great that you help other women redefine what money can mean for them and create a space that can also mean a community for them. I, I would imagine that has been so beneficial for them. Because when they're, a lot of the times we cognitively know what we're supposed to be doing with money. Right. And yet if you're doing something that no one else in your, in your social circle is doing, your family, your friends, your colleagues, it can be really isolating. Okay. Right. And we're very social creatures. So finding a group, joining a community that's already doing the thing you want to do is that's actually part of habit research too. It's just, it's the easiest way to actually have it stick with your life. That's why it's great to like join vegan clubs or CrossFit, you know, because it becomes part of your identity. Oh, I think that's a, a beautiful reminder kind of in general life too, not just financially. I mean, these, these experiences you've had really can go beyond the financial piece, I would imagine, for mm -hmm. these women that you work with. So with all of that, how do people reach you? If they're like, wow, this was really powerful of what Deanna's telling us, um, and it's a whole different message about finances and money, how can they reach you? The main way is through my website. That's www.allthecolors.net. NET for network. And I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. For people who want help managing their assets, I also work with Strategy Squad. Strategy Squad focuses like there, they have a assets under management minimum. And they also focus on alternative investments that are very community focused because everything I do is like I'm very motivated by how do we how do we solve like environmental labs and mm -hmm. systemic mm -hmm. injustice, you know, like right. <laughs> big goals. and everything that I do is aligned with that. Yeah. Including the investment work. Well, I think that's amazing. And I really, truly appreciate um, meeting you and having you here on this podcast, kind of sharing your deep kind of experience and your journey of, of being here and helping other women in a variety of different communities. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting, and you can find my podcast on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Also, you can find me at my website at www.reddoorcc.com. You can email me at mhennon at reddoorcc.com if you're interested in transformational coaching. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.